Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. We are living in a time where um, people suffering for Jesus is, is, is in our news. We have seen it in recent days. According to Open Doors USA, Open Doors is an organization that focuses on the persecuted church. Uh, They've said this, they said, Prayers are desperately needed for believers in Afghanistan. In a recent interview with Reuters, a high-ranking Taliban commander, Wahidullah Hashimi, he confirmed that Afghanistan would not be a democracy under the Taliban and that they will implement no law but Sharia. There will be no democratic system at all because it does not have any base in our country. We will not discuss what type of political system should we apply in Afghanistan because it's clear it is Sharia law and that's it. During their rule in the 1990s, the Taliban ruled with an extreme interpretation of Sharia law. They imposed brutal brutal rules for women, instituted violent punishments for infidels, including believers who left their Muslim faith to follow Christ. The Open Doors field director for Asia asked for prayer. He says, these are uncertain times for Christians in Afghanistan. It is absolutely dangerous. We don't know what the next months will bring, what kind of implementation of Sharia law we will see, but we will continue to ask you to intercede for our brothers and sisters. They are facing insurmountable adversity. We must pray without ceasing. In an interview with CBN, local believer Hamid shared fears that the Taliban will eliminate the Christian population. We know a Christian believer who we've been working within, uh, working within the north. He's a leader, and we've lost contact with him because his city has fallen to the Taliban. Hamid said there are three other cities that we have lost contact with our Christian fellow believers. Some of the believers are known in their communities. People know that they converted from Islam to Christianity, and they are considered apostates. And the penalty for that is death. The Taliban are, are famous now for carrying out that punishment. Images of locals stampeding to board U.S. military planes have flooded social media while on the streets and marketplaces rifle-brandishing members of the Taliban roam to keep the peace. I don't know if you saw the the video of the people clinging to that cargo aircraft that took off with people clinging to the outside of it, and there were video of bodies falling from the outside of that cargo plane as people were desperate to escape from the rule of the Taliban. Senior editor of World Magazine Mindy Bells said this, The Afghan church is a unique community, mostly 40 years old and younger. They're all Muslim converts. It's one of the fastest growing churches in the world. Since they're a tiny church, now doubled in size, they are considered very fast growing. There's perhaps only 2,000 people. But they are an important force in Afghanistan, simply because of the force of the gospel that it is. Because of the love of Jesus, the reach they have is a real thing in a dark, Taliban-shadowed country. About two years ago, a number of these church community leaders did something amazing and brave. They decided to change their identity, their religious affiliation in particular, on their national identification cards. All Afghan citizens have a national ID card. They are used all the time for many reasons. They often show religious affiliation. That affiliation tends to be handed down by the father of the family. The new Christian church elders wanted to change their identification for the sake of their future generations. Not all Christians agreed that this was a good idea, but several dozen of them have changed their official identification to Christian. Now the government records show Christian affiliation. 
These are the Christians that have been targeted over the past few days. And one, at least one Christian that I know of has received a letter from the Taliban stating, we know where you are and we know what you're doing. This implies that the Taliban has access to these government records. The Taliban then showed up to this Christian's house the day before the full city takeover. They've also visited other Christian homes. You might argue these are small, isolated events. But they play against the backdrop of nearby atrocities. Afghan military who have been hauled out of their homes and shot, and in one case, beheaded. Afghan Christians are totally vulnerable with no political power. They have no one to appeal to. They don't even qualify for special immigrant visas to the United States or other Western countries because they have avoided working for American organizations or working for the Afghan military. To do so potentially exposes them to attention and danger. That's today. This is Sunday, taking place on the other side of the world, approximately 12, 14 hours in the future from where we currently are. Afghanistan is on our radar. We are concerned about what we are seeing. We are concerned about the persecution that is taking place there in Central Asia, but we need to recognize that Afghanistan is not the only place where Christians gather under the threat of violence, under the threat of murder, under the threat of punishment. Open Door suggests, listen to this, more than 340 million Christians live in places where they experience high levels of persecution just for the name of Jesus. If you break that down, that is one out of every eight believers in the world faces potential suffering simply because they identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. We could do a sample even in this room and every eighth person stand up and that's the number of people who are suffering reproach for the name of Jesus. In our side of the world, in the West, we've certainly seen the COVID-19 pandemic be used by some in power to prevent the church from meeting. Even that still pales in comparison to the suffering that many of our brothers and sisters around the world have had to endure. It's one thing for the government to say, you can't worship in a large group. It's another thing for the government to come and say, we will take your head off your shoulders if you come out of your house bearing the name of Jesus. As we continue our journey through Acts, we find that the infant church that we have been working with, that they are encountering more and more pressure and more and more opposition, began back in chapters 3 and 4. It didn't take long, but back in chapters 3 and 4, that beggar was healed and made a big show. Everybody heard about it. There was a lot of, lot of talk that was taking place. And the, the healing of that beggar and the subsequent preaching that followed, it did result in arrest. It did result in threats happening. However, the church was empowered as a consequence of it. The disciples were said, don't ever teach in the name of Jesus again. And what happens is they immediately go out and start teaching in the name of Jesus again. They're empowered as a result of the pressure. We see the same pattern here in chapter 5 as well. Again, I'm not going to read all the verses that we're discussing today, but I do want us to pick up somewhere around verse 33 in chapter 5. Leading up to this moment, the disciples had been arrested. They'd been miraculously freed. It's not the only time that someone is miraculously freed from jail there in the book of Acts. They're given instructions by an angel to go back to the temple the very next day and, and keep preaching. You want us to go back where we just got ran out of? You want us to go back and preach and do the very thing for which we were arrested just yesterday? You want us to go back and do that? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And so what do they do? Well, they go back, and they continue preaching. And they were brought back in front of the council, and they were threatened again. And Peter, again, being the spokesperson for the infant church, he makes another incredible defense of the gospel in front of this group. And it's there that we pick up in verse 33. I would invite you to stand as we read Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. After Peter's impassioned defense of the gospel, we find these words. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For behold, these days, uh, for before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking of man, is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let him go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. God, thank you for the courage of these men filled with the Holy Spirit, facing intense opposition. Thank you for their faithfulness to you and their example to us. Lord, may we... May we embrace whatever hardships come our way because of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as we follow in this example. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. We encounter this church and something, I mean, if you miss this, you're not reading carefully enough. For these men, for this church, for these people who have followed the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no denying that the Christian faith is an absolutely serious reality for these converts. It, it is who they are. It is, it is, their, it is what their name is. I, I was sort of amused as I was reading the article from, um, from the, the Lady World magazine talking about changing their identity. Because we live in this strange new world where, where how we identify is how we're supposed to be known. And in some states, you can change the identity of your gender on your driver's license, and you get to identify however you want to identify. But I will say that what's happening in Afghanistan is the one true place that your identity can be changed. Where you can go from not being a Christian to being a Christian. That is, in fact, a, an identity change. The Bible says that anyone who's in Christ is a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. And so when someone is in Christ, their identity has certainly changed. And for these first century believers, they recognize that that is new for them. This is a radical new thing, and it is a serious reality for them. Consider just what they've experienced in this chapter, chapter 5. 
We, we saw the sudden and unexpected death of Ananias and Sapphira. We, again, the, the people were shocked when this happened. And so, but death happened at the altar as a result of that. Verses 12 through 16 in chapter 5 reports that the church had been responsible for incredible signs and wonders. And we're told in verse 14 of Acts chapter 5, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Think about the picture here. Here is this church that has reached this status of significance where people were... We're, we're looking for Peter so that just his shadow could pass over these sick people. We need that in a COVID world, don't we? Just bring the COVID people out and let somebody's shadow pass over them. This is what's happening here. And so there is remarkable events taking place in this infant church. But as these events unfold, as their popularity increases, the persecution that unfolds at the end of the chapter is where this absolutely got real. It's easy to imagine that following Jesus with the status of a celebrity is something convenient to do. If everybody loves what you're doing, if everybody celebrates what you're doing, oh, you're a Christian? Good for you! It's easy for these children to say they follow Christ until somebody in their school makes fun of them for their desire to go to church, for their willingness to not play a sport because it interferes with their commitment to Christ. It's easy as long as no one's making fun and as long as we celebrate those decisions that are being made. But what happens when the pressure is turned up? When it's no longer popular or cool? When it's no longer the in thing to do? It's not quite as easy to follow Jesus when that celebrity status is revoked. It would be easy to wear the name Christian if everybody in the town came out to see you because of who you are. Be easy. If everybody rejoiced because you were a Christian, it would be easy to say, well, I'm a Christian. Everybody loves me. I'm a Christian. There was a time in our society, particularly in the South, where it was expected that you would go to church, that it was expected that you would be a Christian, that if you wanted to be a reputable business person, you'd better have been a member of First Baptist Church or First Methodist Church. You'd better make sure that you had those social construct connections. But now that's not the case any longer. And more and more, we're seeing in our culture, as the depravity is on the rise, that the status of the church is on the demise. It's not as easy as it once was. Peter and James and John, there's a celebrity about them. Just let their shadow. Can you imagine the temptation for an ego where people would just bring their sick out, hoping to position in just the right way so that the sun would hit you and land your shadow on them just right? Can you imagine the temptation of, of how popular you are? Crowds of people trying to get near you? That celebrity status, though, got taken down a notch by the Sadducees and Pharisees and these religious rulers. After a couple of arrests, the disciples face their first physical punishment. Luke here doesn't specify what kind of beating they took. You know, he doesn't tell us that, you know, that they were taken out and a, and a, a temple guard, you know, roughed them up. Most commentators assume that this beating that they took was the, was the beating with a whip. Not, probably not as severe as the cat of nine tails that beat Jesus, but still beat with a whip. The standard punishment for the Jews was 39 lashes because it was believed that 40 lashes would kill a man. I've never been beat with a whip before. I've never been beat with a belt before. 
I can't imagine what it would be like to have my back exposed and let some 250-pound thug with a leather strap begin to beat me with that whip. I cannot imagine. I don't want to imagine what that would be like. Here's a picture of a former slave in 1863. His back bearing the scars of a flogging by his master. You imagine? I, I, I look at this and I think, if, if I were there tied to a post, my back exposed, and someone were striking me with that whip, that the first crack of the whip that set my back on fire, how tempting it would be to say, I, I surrender. I surrender. I won't preach anymore. How tempting it would be, because otherwise to walk away looking like that, and the pain and agony and suffering that would come along with that, how tempting it would be to tap out. But that's not what happens. It's not what happens at all. It begs a serious question, one that is good for all of us to ask. How serious is your faith? Is your faith as serious to you today as it is to the disciples in Acts chapter 5? What level of discomfort... What level of irritation are you willing to endure for the cause of Christ? The persecuted church stands as a witness against us today. It's honestly like we are living in two different worlds. In the West, we meet in the comfort of our air-conditioned sanctuaries. It, it occurred to me as I was thinking through this that this building that we're meeting in is the most prominent structure in our community. Think about that. This is the most prominent structure in 30725. We meet our air-conditioned sanctuaries. In our pandemic world, we've given everybody the option to watch from home. And if you're watching from home today, you're watching in the same level of quality that you can stream your favorite Netflix program. It looks just as good as anything you could watch and stream online. Our seats are comfortable. We got some comfortable pews. I'm not a fan of pews, but we got some comfortable pews. We have the luxury of sending you home with nice, glossy discipleship material. We can even give you colorful pages. They may be upside down, but they're filled with upcoming events and things, telling you what we're going to eat for dinner on Wednesday night, what our next gathering is going to look like. This morning, Christians in Afghanistan had to do some pretty complicated calculus, didn't they? Do you continue to hide in your house and pray that no one knocks on the door? Do you risk crossing the street to your neighbor's home because you know that they too are a believer and gather for prayer hoping that God would provide some means of deliverance from their suffering? How do you make that decision in a nation like Afghanistan today? How much trouble are you willing to put up with for the cause of Christ? Keep, keep in mind, this: the Bible never tells us to avoid comfort. The Bible never says, don't be comfortable, avoid comfort. As a matter of fact, the whole concept of the Sabbath is designed to give us a way to relax, refresh, renew, 
the, the idea of taking some time away from work, it's not to go ride on the boat in the lake. That's not what the Sabbath is for. The Sabbath is designed for us to take some time to renew, to reconnect with the Lord, to reflect, to rest. Even when we think about Jesus, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus even said this. He said, come to me all who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus beckons us to come to him, and he beckons us with an offer of a lighter burden, of an easier load. Again, we're not talking about physical things here ever. Jesus is not calling us to a terrestrial rest home. Jesus here is giving us rest for our souls. It's an invitation to comfort, but not the lazy boy style of comfort that we think of here in America. It's an invitation to a different kind of comfort. Because we have to understand that when Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy burdened, I will give you rest. He's speaking to Americans in the first world, but he's also talking to Afghani believers in that world. He's offering the same invitation to all of us, which says, you know, I'm not suffering like they are. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is looking at me and saying that I have the same kind of burden that my Afghanistan brothers have because it's the same sort of spiritual burden because we all struggle with sin. Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you some spiritual comfort. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. The implication here is that following Christ settles us it reassures us and it helps us to cope with whatever challenges that life gives us there's nothing wrong with this it's jesus invitation even when we look to jesus though we see jesus enjoying life don't we jesus is not some curmudgeon sitting around getting mad at people for having a good time jesus the first miracle jesus does is where he's at a wedding and, and he's not at the boring part of the wedding he's at the reception He's at the part where they're partying and they're dancing and they're having a good time. Jesus even turns water into wine, contributing to their merriment. Jesus enjoys these things. He, Jesus goes on fishing trips. He's not looking back at the disciples thinking, you guys shouldn't be doing that. Instead, he looks at the disciples and he says, let me help you. Change your bait. Put your net on the other side. Because I think Jesus liked a good fish fry just like we do. Jesus loved a good retreat into the woods. I love when Jesus goes off into the woods to, to, to talk to the Father because I'm somebody that likes being in the woods. And when Jesus goes to the woods, I think, man, that's a, that's a good place. So Jesus enjoys recreation and comfort and all those things. He doesn't tell us to avoid comfort, but we must understand this. Comfort can never be an idol that we worship. Consider it pure joy. When you face trials of many kinds, James said, consider the disciples here, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer reproach for the name of Jesus. What happens here in Acts chapter 5 sets the pattern for the church for generations and generations. We understand hardship was one of the clearest ways to identify with Jesus. Paul and Silas locked up in prison. What do they do? In stocks. Nowhere to go. Can't sleep. I imagine it's probably hard to sleep 
in that position. Woe is us! We're suffering for Jesus. This was not on the job description. What are we doing here? Please let us out! That's not what Paul and Silas do. Instead, they begin to sing quiet little hymns together. Hey, you know just as I am? Yeah, Paul, I sure do. Hey, let's sing that together. Just two men, alone, in the darkness of the night, lifting their voices to God. Not begging for his deliverance. Not asking for him to relieve the suffering. Not asking for comfort. Just two men honoring Jesus in the middle of their trial, in the middle of their turmoil. We read in church history, martyr after martyr after martyr, on their way to their death, bearing witness to God's faithfulness. I wonder how many of us, if we were on our way to our death for following Jesus, at that moment would declare God's faithfulness. How many of us would be tempted at that moment, being led to our death for Jesus, would at that moment question God's faithfulness? That's where, that's where we need him, right? We're being drugged before the council. We're being drugged before the judges. We're being drugged before the, at, to, to be burned at the stake. Where's Jesus? And he looks at us with nail-scarred hands and says, it is in your trial that you most closely recognize who I am. That's how serious the Christian faith is. How do we respond to hardships? It's real simple. Do what God said. Didn't change. Do what God said in the good times. Do what God said in the bad times. If COVID, the Delta variant, rages and we have to change some of the ways that we operate, does our job change at all? Oh. Our means may, but the call doesn't. The task doesn't. May have to be careful. May have to do it behind plexiglass or whatever other thing we think is important. But the job doesn't change. How do we respond to hardship? We do exactly what God has said. These men had just been beat. Look at the slave. Think about that man's back. They had just been beat. They had, how did they have the strength to walk away from the council having had their backs filleted open with a whip? Blood running down their backs. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy for the name. And what do they do? They hid, prayed nobody would find them. They, 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 they went underground and, and, and prayed nobody would see them. Man, look at verse 42 of Acts chapter 5. Every day, not just on Sunday, every day in the temple. That's the place that they were caught. 
They went right back to the scene of the crime and said, come get us again. They went right back to the one place that they were caught every single time. They were told, do not go. They went from house to house. And they did not stop teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Don't stop. House to house was easy. Back to the temple? Lord of all the places, can we avoid that place? Every single day. Because the threats... The violence that they faced was not enough to silence their witness. The Taliban leaves a note on your door. It says, we know who you are, and we know what you're doing. Here's a question. What's the absolute worst thing that could happen to you? They come cut your head off. Right? The fact of the matter, the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 12, verse 10, For the sake of Christ I am content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Sometimes stuff happens in life that makes you want to give up. But even in those moments of weakness... That is when Jesus shines the brightest in us. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the answer is nobody. Nobody. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, for Jesus' sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, no, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How serious is your faith in the Lord? How serious is your proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord? Is it serious enough to endure the hardest of challenges for the sake of the glory of Christ? Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you for your precious word. Thank you, Father, for the witness of these disciples who 
who rejoiced in their suffering because they were counted worthy to suffer reproach for the name. Lord, in, our, in the comfort of our day, with the air conditioner blowing and the 1080p streaming, may we not ever allow our comfort to become an idol that we worship. May we understand that our role in your church is bigger than how comfortable is our seat. What's the temperature in the room? Do we even have a room? Or Jesus is the centerpiece of our faith. Jesus is who we worship. Jesus is who we serve. The end. Everything else is extra. So if anything else takes our focus off of who we are and whose we are, then God, would you purge that from our lives? Lord, make us faithful. And even in the comfort of our world, and we see rumbles and challenges on the horizon, may we remain steadfast and true. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.